All right. Good morning, everybody. All right. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> we'll try this again. Good morning, everyone. All right. <laughs> How do you get these people to sit down, Paul? <laughs> All right. Good morning, everybody. We're. Uh... <laughs> I feel like I've lost control before we've even started. So. <laughs> All right. Come on, people. All right. Here's a quick question for everybody. How many people here today have perfect children? All right, you guys can go. <laughs> we still have most of the people are going to be staying here. We got maybe maybe 15% that are going to be leaving, but the rest are going to be staying. So, what we want to look at today is we're continuing this series on Pass the Baton, and this morning we're specifically going to be looking at young children. Phil's going to do one on. Um, on teenage years, I think that's the right word, and then Paul's going to follow up with uh, young adults after that. Whenever, the t- whenever we teach anything at all about children or about youth or about raising, we're always tempted to tell everything that we possibly know. And there's no way that we can do that. And so we always come up with this feeling like we're not given the whole message, that we're missing something out. And in so what we've done, first of all, two things. Number one is we're only going to focus on one specific thing today, and that's how to pass the baton. That's all we're going to talk about is how do you pass the baton. For all those other things, I felt like, well, there's so much to do about young kids. So what we've done is we have a book to give to everybody who's a parent by my favorite author, J.C. Ryle. He was an Anglican bishop in the uh, 1800s. And um, just a small book, more like a book, but it's like 36 pages long. And when you're done, you can just see... Uh, the greatest in the back will have one. And uh, it's 36 pages long. It's divided into 17 different points. What I encourage you to do is to take the book, read through one point, and just don't read any further. Just stop, pray, evaluate it, and see if you can apply that to your, to your life. So the most important point you can get out of this message is to get the book when you leave. <laughs> That's the most important thing. We've got plenty. I forget how many families we have, and we've got like 12 more after that. Should I go further away? Is it working? Is it the position at all? All right, how's this? Better? That's good? All right, we'll leave it there. So I won't touch it again. So what we're going to do today is we're looking at passing the baton. We're going to, ask five, we're going to answer five questions. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to answer what is the baton that we're trying to pass. We want a clear picture of this. We want to know how do we pass it. We want to know how do we know if our kids are getting it. What should we do if it looks like they're not getting it? And finally, what is the outcome if they do get it? So let's pray. Father God, we come before you now, and we just look at this uh, topic today, Lord, this passage, and it is so, so, so vital that we get this. It is so critical, Lord, that we understand what you are teaching. We know that without you... It is meaningless. The words that I speak are merely words, nothing more without your spirit behind them. So, Holy Spirit, we ask today that you'll be with us. We ask today that you'll be with us greater than any time that you have been before so that we might understand how do we raise our kids? How do we pass the baton? How do we have children who are still Christians when they're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old? Help us today, Spirit, 
be with us. In your name we pray. Amen. Back in the Old Testament, the Israelites were in Egypt. They were there for 400 years. They originally went down there when Joseph was sold to Potiphar and he became, he saved them during a time of famine and he brought his family down there. They ended up being there for 400 years. God blessed them and multiplied them, but they ended up becoming slaves. And for generations, for hundreds of years, they were slaves. They were slaves born to slaves. They had no hope of freedom. And God steps in and he brings them out of Egypt. He brings them out of slavery. And we have a generation who sees God in action, who sees these ten plagues that come through, who sees the Red Sea divided. As they walk through it, walls of water on each side. Um, estimates close to two million people walking through, this, walking through this wall of water. It's a generation that knows God's salvation. They have with them a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night that they follow. They can see God all the time. And yet, believe it or not, this generation who has seen all that God has done fears man more than they fear God. They had never, they had been slaves their whole life. They had never been taught to fight. They had never fought. They had never been in any kind of a combat at all. God takes them out and says, go into the land of Canaan and fight these people. The battle is yours. I will give you this land. You just have to go in and fight. And they don't do it. They don't do it. They're afraid to go in. They fear God more than they fear man. And so this generation now becomes a generation who knows God's wrath. As punishment, God gives them exactly what they ask for. They say, we don't want to go in the land. We don't want to fight these people. God says, okay, you don't have to. They spend the next 40 years in the wilderness wandering around. And now comes a new generation, this next generation. This is a generation who's been born in the wilderness, a generation that watched a generation die in rebellion against God. This generation is bound and determined that they're going to listen to God. They're not going to make the same mistake that the other generation have lived And so Moses, before he dies, in the book of Deuteronomy, gives him instructions for following, for going into the land. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. And so he tells him Joshua is going to be the one that leads you now. He's going to take you into the promised land. And you're going to take the land. God is going to give you this land. Moses is not concerned at all. He's not afraid that they're not going to take the land. You know what he's afraid of? He's afraid that after they take the land. He's afraid that after they have peace, They will forget God. His concern is that when they have peace, they will forget God. Turn to Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 through 12. We have an overhead as well for this one. And just leave the book open to Deuteronomy if you want. We're going to be looking at that here shortly. Verses 10 and 12 says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. When you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
Moses is afraid that in this time of peace, they're going to forget God. He's afraid their children will forget God. He's afraid that the grandchildren will forget God. Does that happen today? We know many parents who are saved in later life, and they know what they're saved from. And they know what forgiveness feels like. They know what forgiveness tastes like. They know what forgiveness is. And they're close to God all their lives. When they think of what God has done for them, they cry. They cry when they think of what God has saved them for. But oftentimes their children don't. Their children don't know what they've been forgiven from. They don't see their sins because they've always been good kids and they've been raised in a good family. We don't want this to happen to our children. We want our children to be saved. But it's not enough just that they say that they have been saved. We want them to remember God. We want strong Christians. We want Christians who will persevere to the end. Paul told us last week those horrible statistics. Two-thirds of all kids raised in a Christian home will walk away from Christ. They will walk away from the church. They will forget. We don't want those. We want our children who will persevere to the end. We want our children who will endure suffering, who are able to endure persecution, who are able to endure famine. But not only that, we want kids who are able to endure fortune, to endure success, to endure peace, to endure riches, and still not forget God. We want them to remember God. The Apostle Paul says this, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He said, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I know in every and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. No matter what situation our children find themselves in, we don't want them to forget God. And so God gives Moses, and Moses gives the people Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. He gives them a way that's going to help them from, ha- from this happening. So let's read that. That's the passage that we're going to be looking at today mostly. He says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons, and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Moses is saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, and obey God's commandments. Does that sound familiar at all? In the New Testament, we have someone who comes up to Jesus and says, what is the greatest commandment? 
And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. Jesus said that God's commandment can be summed up as love your neighbor as yourself. So what is the baton that we want to pass to our children? What was Moses talking about here? And this is it simply stated. This baton is the gospel in their hearts walked out in love toward God and others. We want our kids to grow up, to leave the house with the gospel in their hearts walked out in love toward God and others. We want our kids to know the gospel. What is the gospel in five fingers? Maybe a lot of you have known this already. The gospel in five fingers? Christ died for our sins. How do we want them to walk out the gospel in five fingers? Love God and love others. Once again, the gospel? Christ died for our sins. How do you walk it out? Love God and love others. What does this look like in our children? We're talking about young children here. What does it look like? How do we recognize it so we can train them and so we can see if our training is effective, if it's working or not at all? It looks like 2 Thessalonians. We have an overhead for this, or if you want to turn there, short verse. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3. This is how we're going to be able to recognize it. He says, We ought always to give you thanks. Let me start again. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for another is increasing. Paul says we should thank God. It's right that we thank God. This is why we should thank God. Because your faith is growing. And your love for one another is growing. So as we look at our kids, this is what we're looking for. This is what we want to be able to see. We want to see a growing faith and a growing love for one another. See, Paul doesn't thank God because their faith is perfect, but because it's growing, because it's increasing. Paul doesn't thank God because their love for one another is perfect, but because it is growing and because it is increasing. Look for that growth in your children, both in their faith and in their love. Look for evidences of grace in their life. Look for the fruit of the Spirit. Look for love, joy, peace. Look for patience and kindness and goodness. Look for faithfulness. Look for gentleness. Look for self-control. Take these two verses and put them on your refrigerator. Second Thessalonians 1, 3, and 4. It's a growing faith. It's a growing love. Galatians 5, 22, and 23. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And look to see how they're doing in these things. Have these things before you. What we're looking for is the gospel in their hearts being walked out in love towards God and others. So, that's what it is. That's how we recognize it. The question is, how do we do it? And what should our attitude be like as we do it? So from Deuteronomy, how we do it, um, five ways that Moses tells us in this passage. Number one is found in verse 6. It says, And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. Before we can teach these things to our children, they have to be on our heart. 
Examine yourself. Are you a Christian? Have you repented from your sins? Have you asked Christ to forgive your sins? Have you given up the world and all that it has to offer to offer yourself to Christ? Is your own faith growing? Is your own love for others growing? Are you walking the gospel out in love towards God and towards others? These things must be on our heart if we are to put them in the hearts of our children. This phrase on your heart also means to meditate on the law day and night. We're to spend time in the Word. We're to spend time not only reading, but thinking about the world after we read it. So we read, we spend some time thinking. That's what the meditating part is. We're asking our children to do what we want ourselves to do. February 1st, 1776, in a town called Royston, Yorkshire, England, a guy named James Taylor was going to get married. He had a little cottage, and he wanted to get it ready for his wife. So his wife's at the church. They're all at the church. He's doing this last-minute stuff, getting ready for the cottage. And these words kept going through his mind over and over and over. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And as he's cleaning up and as he's getting ready, he asks himself, can this be true? Can this be said of me and my bride, Betty? And this, his answer was no, and this thought drove him to his knees in prayer. And to quote, a solemn transaction was formed in that hour between the young stonesman and his creator. He quickly ran the two miles to church. He gets there breathless. He gets married. And he and his house serve the Lord. And James Taylor passes his baton on to his son, who passes the baton on to his son, who passes the baton on to his son, who was born, and his name was Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China for 51 years. He founded the China Inland Mission. He was responsible for bringing 800 other missionaries to China. They started 125 schools. They started 300 workstations. They direct that, all this directly resulted in 18,000 people becoming Christians in China during the, I think it was like late 1800s, early 1900s. 18,000 people. Because one man, James Taylor, took these words, he put them on his heart, and he passed the baton to his son, who passed the baton to his son as well. Number two, teach them diligently. We must teach them intentionally over the long haul. This will not be done quickly. We usually have our children for 18 years, which means that God intended this training to take a long time. And honestly, sometimes it feels like a long time. <laughs> but that Eugene Merrill, the New American Commentary, says this, because he's talking about this image and the actual Hebrew word for diligently, and he says this, he says, The image is of the engraver of a monument who takes the hammer and the chisel in his hand and with painstaking care, he etches a text into the face of a solid slab of granite. The sheer labor of such a task is daunting indeed. But once it's done, once it's done, the message is there to stay. It is a lifetime of the gospel in their hearts, walked out in love towards God and towards others. Number three. Verse 7, 
You shall talk with it. Verse, or number three is talk of God's way often. Verse 7 says this, You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. This should be brought up continuously as our day goes long. You see the contrast? When you sit down, when you walk. When you lie down, when you rise up. It doesn't matter what you're doing. He's saying, talk about God. Talk about Jesus. Let them see how he affects everything. Pray with them in the morning. Pray with them in the evening. Let God's name be glorified in your house. Build this into them when they are young. And it will be with them when they are old. Charles Spurgeon says, take care what you're after. You're twisting the sapling and the old oak will be bent thereby. This can be done when they're very, very young. Even before they can read, they can listen. They can say prayers. They can love their brothers and their sisters. They can be kind to them. Numbers 4 and 5 are found in verses 8 and 9. He says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. These verses most likely were meant originally figurative, but later on they became uh, literal. And what they would do later on was that they would have these things, and I'm not quite sure if I'm pronouncing this right, phylacteries, is that the right, or close enough? Close enough, I guess. Um, and they were little leather boxes that contained scripture verses, and they would wear them on their hands, and they would, uh, um, on their foreheads as well. And they would have um, things, I forgot what the name of them was, but they put them on their gate and on the doorpost, and those two would, thank you. Um, they would, if you heard what he said, I couldn't pronounce it anyway. So, but they would put the verses in there. So they'd have verses on their hand physically. They'd have verses on their forehead physically. They'd have them on the door physically. They'd have them on the, on the gates physically. But um, One of the commentaries says this. He says, The commands to tie them and write them were taken literally by some of the later Jewish readers. However, the commands are probably emphasizing symbolically the need for the continual teaching of the law. So, with that in mind, that they probably means emphasizing this need for continual teaching of the law, we're going to look at these two points, perhaps take a little bit of liberty, but we want to see how we can continually teach this. So, point number four was to bind them to your eyes and to put them in front of your... No, to bind them to your hands and put them in front of your eyes. Bind them to your hands, put them in front of your eyes. What's the purpose of hands and of eyes? Because he's saying when you wake up, when you go down, when you rise, when you sit, over and over, now he's saying your eyes and your hands. So the hands are for doing, right? How many things do we do that we don't do with our hands? Almost everything we do with our hands. Almost every occupation involves our hands. Carpenter, firefighter, engineer, secretary, librarian, anything has to do with our hands. What about our eyes? The eyes are for seeing. We use our hands, we use our eyes all day long. And we need to train our children that all they do, everything they see, should be done through the filter of God. His word. His commandments. To disobey his way is a sure way to lead us into misery. So we need to teach them about their hands and their eyes. Number five, write them on the doorposts. Write them on the gates. What are doors for? What are gates for? For doors, we go into and out of the house. When we leave our house, 
we want to think of God. When our young children leave the house to go to friends, we can pray with them. Pray with them that they won't do anything that's wrong. That they will honor God in what they do at their friend's house. That they will love their neighbor as themselves. And when we return, we can ask them. We can talk to them. Did they do that? Did God answer this prayer? When we, if we start young, this will become their way of life. This will be their thoughts. This will be their prayers when they go anywhere out of the house as they approach these different situations. What are gates for? Protection from enemies, right? When we think of a gate, we usually think of protection from enemies. The gates allow us to let in people we want in and to keep out people that we want out. Teach your children when they're young how to choose their friends. Who they let in closely to their lives. When they are too little to discern, choose for them. Decide when they are young who will be a good influence on them. You may offend some people, but what's most important to you? Are the people's opinion or your children? How many young people have been lost because of their choice of friends? I'm not saying not to have non-Christian friends at all. I'm saying watch for those ones who are close. Watch for those ones who are intimate. Watch for the ones that can change your children's life. When these kids are too young to defend themselves, when they're too young to discern how to pick up their friends, decide how much time will be spent with these different friends. We have an overhead for this. J.C. Rowland's book, Thoughts for Young Men, which is obviously older. He's talking about young men here. But he says this about friends, which I just thought was so good. He says, Never make an intimate friend of anyone who is not a friend of God. Understand me, I do not speak of acquaintances. I do not mean that you have nothing to do with anyone but true Christians. To to take such a line is neither possible nor is it desirable in this world. Christianity requires no man to be discourteous. But I do advise you to be very careful in your choice of friends. Do not open your heart to a man merely because he is clever, agreeable, good-natured, and kind. These things are all very well in their way, but they are not everything. Neither, never be satisfied with the friendship of anyone who will not be useful to your soul. Believe me, the importance of this advice cannot be overrated. There is no telling the harm that is done by associating with godless companions and friends. The devil has few better helps in ruining a man's soul. You may resist many open temptations, refuse many plain snares, but once you take up with a bad companion, he, meaning Satan, is content. That awful chapter which describes Amnon's wicked conduct about Tamar almost begins with these words. Now Amnon had a friend, a very shrewd man. God tells us that on our gates we are to bind his commandments. So those are the five things that Moses tells us to do in that chapter. What should our attitude be like. For this, we want to move to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I don't have the verse numbers here. I just have it written down. We have an overhead. So it should be... There it is. 7 and 8, and then we're going to jump down to 11 and 12. Because what Paul is doing is Paul is talking, talking to the Thessalonians, and he's, he's talking about the way that he was to them. And he uses this example of a mother and a father 
to their children. He uses this as a proper example of how his behavior was and should be towards others. So we can use his proper example as our proper example. He says this. He says, We are gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Jumping down. For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Paul says that we're to use these attitudes. And so just quickly running through these attitudes. Gentle is the first one. Are you gentle in dealing with your children? Affectionately desiring to be with them. Can they tell that you like them? Are you affectionate with them? Can they see that you want to be with them? He says, we are ready to share not only the gospel, but our lives. Do you only share the things that are necessary? Or do you share your life with them? These are the attitudes that we need if we're going to pass this baton successfully. That next section, the NIV uses the words encouraged, comforted, and urged. And Newt Larson in his commentary says, encouraging is a heartfelt term. It's not a one-time shot in the arm just to make a person feel better, but it's the strong support and the trust that imparts courage to others. People need to be infused with courage again and again as a matter of practice to be emboldened in what they know is right. Do you encourage your children? Comfort is the gentle empathy which comes and which stays alongside someone as they experience failures and distresses in their life. Are you there for your children in that comforting way? Urging. Urging comes from a solemn and an earnest view of the situation. Urging is asking someone to do or to be something for the highest good. Urging has a clear view of what is right, and it leads a person through the maze of emotions and conflicts which can confuse an issue. Do you urge your children to walk in a manner worthy of God? If we are to effectively pass on this baton of walking out this gospel... These are the attitudes that we have. Our children must see our love, our compassion, our encouragement. D.A. Carson, in summing up this section, says the words are God are to be ever before his people. They are to be parts of the routines of life, of every normal human activity. This is not a religion for Sundays only. God has something to say about every aspect of life and every decision that human beings can make. So we come to the next question. How can we tell if our training is working? Because we need to be able to evaluate it so we can tell if it's working. We do this by examining our children. Is their faith growing? Remember, Paul wasn't thanking God because their faith was perfect, but because it was increasing, because it was growing. Look at your children. Does their faith growing? If it is... Your training is working. Is their love for others 
growing? At home, are they nicer to the other children? When they come to church, watch your kids sometime when they come to church. Are they reaching out to the other children? I'm talking about children of all age, young, young children reaching out to other ones all the way up. Are they reaching out in love to children, especially especially those, to those children who are alone, who are sitting by themselves? Do your children do that? If not, encourage them to do it. Urge them to do it. And we can see if they are doing it, your training is working. If they are, question, if they are asking questions, your training is working. Dropping down the same passage in the Deuteronomy 6, it says, When your son asks you in time, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules of the Lord or God has commanded you, then you shall say, we are Pharaoh's slave in Egypt, and he goes on and on. But the point is, he says, look, the kids as they start to get are going to come up to you. They're going to start asking you questions. This is what you say when they start asking you questions. One of the ways that you can evaluate your training is if they start asking questions. You know, this is, these are the moments that we as parents live for in raising our kids. When they come to us, when they ask questions, when they start to take that faith of ours, that faith of the church, and they begin to make it their own. At this time, just do your best to answer them. They're not theologians. They're children. They want answers. Just answer as best you can. See, in this passage, Moses is telling every single parent to train their children. No matter how smart you feel, no matter how equipped or not equipped you feel, he's telling you to do this, to train your children. I would include in that everyone else who's here today who doesn't have children, or these are other children. Get to know the children of the church by name, not just by their family, but by their own name, and encourage them. Get to know them. Remember, any bit of growth is growth. Jesus said, a bruised reed I will not break. A smoldering wick I will not snuff out. You know, growth is often slow. Oftentimes we don't even see the growth until afterwards. And sometimes when we do see growth, we're surprised that we see growth. That leads us to the next question. What if I don't see any growth? in holiness, in faith, in love with my children, what should I do? Never, never give up. Pray, pray, pray. Continue to do these things over and over and over. If they are still in your house, you still have an influence over them. There is still hope. Sometimes we don't see any growth until after they're out of the house, right? Think about the prodigal son. The prodigal son showed no growth, showed no faith, showed no love for others, right? He took his dad's money. He took his inheritance. He left. He was gone for a long time. He wasted everything he could. He wasted on prostitutes. He wasted on partying. He wasted on everything. It was all gone. And then he remembered his father's love. He remembered his father's compassion. He remembered his father's kindness. These things that we were building into our children before with the love and the care and the concern. He remembered this years later when he was in the pigsty. And he came back. This faith was dormant and it sprang to life in the worst of all places. That might be your child. So have hope. Don't give up. If God is not willing to give up hope, don't you dare Give up hope. 
We must remember ultimately whose responsibility it is. It's ultimately God's responsibility, right? He saves our children just like he saves us. By his grace. Not by their works. Not by our works, but by God's grace. Never forget that. If you're in the position right now of seeing no growth in your child and you feel like this is overwhelming, what I encourage you to do is make sure you get the book that's in the back. We got, I counted up the families and we got like 12 extra ones. So everyone here has one of those books and we have extra. Go to pages 32 and 34. Write that down, pages 32 and 34. Go there first. Read those two sections. One is on the power of sin in the lives of your children. And the one right after that one is the power of God's promises. Take special note of the concept afterwards. Just one line from it. He says it's not God's way to give everything at once. Afterwards is the time when he often chooses to work, both in the things of nature and in the things of grace. Oftentimes it's not until afterwards. Don't give up hope. Read those two sections first, then go through and read the whole, the whole book. When it comes to pray, when it comes to prayer, never give up. J.C. Ralph in the book, once again, Water, therefore, the seed you sow in their minds with unceasing prayer. The Lord is far more willing to hear than we are to pray. He's far more ready to give blessings than we are to ask. I suspect the child of many prayers is seldom cast away. When Hudson Taylor was just a boy, his mother went away for some time. She had to go somewhere, so she was gone in a few weeks. Hudson Taylor was missing his mother. The house was lonely. It was empty. He was by himself. So he picks up this book and he starts reading it. At the exact same time, his mother, in the midst of all these other people, has a sudden burden for her child. She excuses herself. She goes into another room. She prays for hour after hour for her son until her heart was flooded with joy of the full assurance that her prayer had been answered. At that room, at that very hour, Hudson Taylor is reading through this book and he's struck by the words, the finished work of Christ. And these words, the finished work of Christ, keep going over and over and over. And finally, he says, then came the thought with startling clearness. If the whole work is finished, what is there left for me to do? The one, the only answer that took possession of my soul was there was nothing in the world for me to do except to fall on my knees and accepting the Savior and his salvation to praise him forevermore. He couldn't wait until his mom got home to share this newfound joy. He was the first one to welcome her. And he told her, you know what she said? It says her mother wrapped her arms around him and said, I know, my boy, I know. I've been rejoicing for a fortnight in the glad news that you have to tell me today. She was already rejoicing before he ever got home. A fortnight, which I think is two weeks, right? For two weeks, she'd already been rejoicing. And then, listen to this. A short time later, he sees a journal and he thinks it's his. He picks up the journal to write in it. It turns out to be his sister's journal. Intentional or not, I don't know, it didn't say, but he picks it up. It turns out to be his sister's journal. He looks in it. Her sister had written that she would give herself daily to prayer until God answered her in the conversion of her only brother. She had written that a month before he had become saved. Never, ever give up hope. Never give up praying. Whether you're a father, whether you're a mother, whether you're a brother, or whether you're a sister, never, ever give up hope 
of praying. Finally, what is the outcome of passing this baton? What is it that we're looking for in the first place? The outcome is that God will bless them. They will love God more. They will love others more. They will suffer well. They will grow old well. They will remember God. The gospel will be in their hearts. They will walk out in love. They will walk the gospel out in love towards God and towards others. God will ultimately call them into his kingdom where they will walk with God. And they will someday walk with you for eternity. The band can come up. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They should be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Take the gospel in your heart. Walk it out in love towards God and others. And pass the baton to your children that the gospel might be in their heart and they might walk it out in love towards God and other people. Father God, we come before you now. And we come to a gracious, loving God who is the father in the story of the prodigal son, whose son had training, no doubt. We could not conceive of a father who would run to his child after his child has squandered everything, after his child has spit in his face, after his child has disrespected him and done all that. We could not fathom that that father didn't try to train up his son in the way that he should go. And now that that child is old, Lord, he did not depart from your ways. He came back to you. You forgave him. You forgive us. This is the God of salvation. This is the God of forgiveness. You are the God of hope. Never let us cease praying, Lord, for our children. Never, ever let us give up hope. And Lord, as our children who are young, young, young children, Lord, let us teach them these ways when they are young. Think about how many problems can be averted, Lord, if we're able to teach them and they're able to learn. Holy Spirit, be with each parent here as they seek to walk this out, as they seek to walk out the training and the passing of the baton, Lord. Be with us all. And Lord, I pray as they pick up this book and they read one section a day for the next two or three or four weeks, Lord, that Holy Spirit, you'll be with them. Guide them. Teach them, Lord. Let them learn. In your holy and precious name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.